All right, so if you've only been with us uh, today, like if you're just visiting today, you haven't, you've missed the last couple weeks. And so we're in a series called The Justice of Christmas. Now, the purpose of this series was for us to take a step back and look at the Advent story kind of afresh and anew. Uh, because it's easy to come to this season, right? It's easy to come to uh, kind of this present state and say, man, you know, I've, I've heard that story, right? To this point in our country, over 90% of our country celebrates this holiday. And, and some of them, whether or not they realize it's truly about Christ or not, have a decent idea of the birth story of Jesus. Most people know, yeah, he's born to a virgin. There was the manger, no room at the inn, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, maybe they've heard stories of the wise men. They've heard stories of the angels and the shepherds and our songs speak to this. So we wanted to take this moment intentionally during the Advent season and not let it just be something easy. And not let it be something that we just kind of roll through and process through. Oh, that's great. Just let me get to the presence, right? Like my my son, that's kind of still his view. Uh, And, you know, like, so we say, hey, what's Christmas about? And he says still presence, right? And we keep saying, well, it's Jesus' birthday and he died for your sins and all this stuff, right? That's really good. But he still just thinks presence. And I, I used to think for a second, I was like, man, Finley, like, you just don't get it, do you? You know, he's two, sorry. So he doesn't get much, right? Um, and then I honestly like just stepped back for a second and realized why we decided to preach this series, and it was because I don't think I get it all that much either. Like, I, I don't think our churches get it. I think we come into this season, and we're like, hey, well, it's Christmas, and we get inundated with ad after ad after ad, commercial after commercial, Black Friday, et cetera, et cetera. And so we delve into the story that this world wants to preach, that the importance of this time uh, is, is just family. It, it's presence. It's uh, c- consuming. It's all these different things. And so... I wanted to be intentional and even remind myself this morning, remind all of us what this season is about. The advent of Jesus, and again, if you're just joining us, advent just means kind of the coming, the arrival of, right? So the arrival of Christ in this world meant a lot of things, right? Like, like, it, It was the singular moment in cosmic history that turned the entire world upside down. And its implications reach into every sector of life. And so as we began to look at the world and think through the world, we said, well, the world is broken. That's that's not really up for debate. Whether you're a Christian or not, this morning you can look out in this world and say, things are probably not the way they should be. And so we said, well, what does it look like for Christ's arrival for his advent to speak towards justice? And justice in through the lens of justice being the way things should be. A just society is a society that functions as God intended it to be. So what did it look like when the advent of Christ all of a sudden speaks into ideas like social injustice and economic injustice, and we'll look at today racial injustice, and then next week and finally spiritual injustice? Now today's might be the most controversial, which is super unfortunate. That a lot of times what we'll hear as we delve into the text today is we're going to kind of have these, these things well up in our heart, I think, that bring about uh, things that are not good, right? Some pushback that I don't know of all that healthy for the church to have. And so here's what I decided to do is we're going to use a ton of scripture today. Because this way, at least if you're upset about it, you're upset with God and not with me, okay? Right, so if you get, if you get upset, email God, right? Jesus at God.com. It's not real. Don't do that. I bet, just, I bet just someone's actually done that. There's some guy posing as Jesus somewhere. Now, before we jump into the text and thinking through this idea, Anthony and I were in the office, and he shared this little nugget of wisdom that he got reading this book that he's reading, and I thought it was just super profound, even as my own heart was wrestling with the ideas that I think we'll pull from today's text, okay? 
And he said this, he said, do you realize that Paul, in his writings in the New Testament, if you're not familiar with Paul, Paul was kind of one of Jesus' closest followers, okay, he wrote about like a huge chunk of the New Testament, what you read, all those letters, that was him. And so in the letters that he writes, there's this continuation of his understanding and evaluation of his own life, and his own view of himself, and I I thought it was helpful for me, and I think helpful for us as we approach a tough text. And so here's what he says, he starts off in 1 Corinthians 15, 9, he calls himself the least of the apostles, right? So the apostles were, were Jesus' kind of closest crew of guys, right? Like he called these 12 to say, you're my guys, go bring this to the world. And so Paul says, looking back on that, he's like, you know what? I'm the least of the apostles. Of those 12, and really he was kind of the 13, it's very confusing, but anyway, he he's views himself as the worst of that group. Now, he goes to the next time in Ephesians 3, 8, and this time he refers to himself as the least of all saints, so here's what he's done. He had this, this initial circle of 12, and he said, well, I'm the worst of that group. Um, and then there's this, this larger group of all the saints, so all the Christians. So now he's writing to Ephesus and saying, man, of all the Christians in the world right now, I'm the worst. Like, I'm the worst. So we see this growth in him as he gets closer to Jesus, that he begins to say, I'm actually the greater problem. Like, like I haven't gotten better. I've just realized I'm actually worse than I thought I was. And then he gets on in this last one in 1 Timothy 1.15. He calls himself the chief of sinners. Okay, so, so notice the growth. So this is, as this guy gets closer to Jesus, as his life becomes more obedient, as he understands Christ greater as Lord, he has greater impact on the kingdom, his realization of self is, yeah, I, I'm the worst of the apostles. Actually, you know, I'm the worst of all Christians. Actually, I'm the chief sinner in this world. Now, this was profound for me as Anthony brought it up because I think... That type of posture is the type of posture that the church should have as we grow closer with Jesus and the things of Jesus. But I think as we approach hard texts and hard ideas, things like racial injustice in our world, I think we find ourselves a little more living over here. Yeah, I'm bad, but I'm not that bad, right? Like, I've got some issues, but I don't have those issues, so, so, so my community, my community is pretty dialed in. We're not like that community. And we, we build these walls, we create this division. And I think it's because even though we're growing with Christ, we're doing the opposite of what we see Paul do. I often see in the church and even in my own heart that I seem like I get closer with Christ and I seem to just think I'm better and better. But the reality is, is actually, no, it's just the eyes are being opened greater and greater and I see my greater need for Christ. I see the greater reality that, guess what, like, I'm not, like, I'm part of the problem. Like, I'm the chief of sinners. I'm not the one that figures this out for everyone. I'm a terrible person like the rest of humanity that desperately needs a Savior in Christ who's come to restore and redeem all things. Now, that is the heart posture I wish, if I can just insert this into your heart, that we would have as we approach this text this morning, okay? And even if you're not there, if you could just try and be there with me. Now, um, last thing, uh, this problem is global, right? This, this, isn't like, this isn't just a church problem. It's not just a Flagstaff problem, an American problem. This is a global problem, right? Um, but I was always taught, like, make sure you, you kind of clean up your own house, right? I, I think, what's your bedroom look like before you start critiquing somebody else's? I remember my mom, I went and did some tsunami relief after the tsunami in Thailand in 2005, right? And we go over there and I'm raising support. My mom says to me one day, she says, you know, I think it's great that you're doing this, sweetheart. 
you know, I'd love that you're going and you want to clean up what's going on over there, but you don't even clean your bedroom, right? And I really thought about that for a moment. And obviously, like, she was like, still let me go. I mean, I'm an adult mom. Um, she still let me go, but it was, there was a kind of a profound reality to that. That I'll, I'll go and do this thing, but like right here at home, I'm all a mess, right? And I think, again, this principle has to drive the way we look at this text this morning. Is that when we can look off into the distance and we can critique and we can complain and we can judge when the own kind of house is a little dirty, and so let's, let's talk about the church just statistically, a little bit about racial division in the church. It, it led, and granted, right, this is 35 years ago, but it led Martin Luther King Jr. to say Sunday morning is the most segregated hour of the week, right? That's like, a, that's like a crazy statement, right? That Sunday morning was the most segregated hour of the week. And the one place that all, and we're going to learn, right, that all races, all ethnicities, all people come underneath one banner, that that hour of the week was the most segregated. That should not be. Now, we would like to think, well, over the last 35 years, we've taken some real positive steps. And I think, yes, there has been some positive steps. Let's not say there hasn't. But let's look at some other statistics. 86% of churches in America today, 86%, almost 9 out of 10, right, are comprised of 90% one race. Okay? So 86% of churches are comprised of 90 plus percent of one single race. And that's, that's of everyone, right? So there are white churches, there's black churches, there's brown churches, and it's 90% or above. So have we really kind of grown? That sounds pretty significantly segregated. Well, then maybe the retort would be, yeah, but there's just far more white people than there are black people or brown people in our country. And that is somewhat true, although hear me, vastly changing and rapidly changing to where they speak in Arizona. They don't even in the next, what, I think it's 12 to 15 years here in the state of Arizona. Oh, no, sorry. It was by 2042. So by 2042, white people will be the minority in the state of Arizona. Okay. And so this is the trend of culture. This is the trend of the world and society. And so, I mean, if we wait till 2042 to say, hey, we better figure out this diversity and love of all races thing, we're way behind the curve as I think we already are right now. So, some other ones, 51%. This is, I just found this kind of just disappointing. 51% of blacks, and this, and there's a Pew Research poll said that they would long for and desire to be in a more diverse church than they are at the moment, okay? 51%. 47% of Latinos and Hispanics said the same thing. Of white community, only 35%. Now, now, this is frustrating because I, I would think the majority culture, the one who does in many ways fill up most of the churches in our world, should be then the ones that's looking out and saying, man, we need to get some more diversity in here. We need to learn a little bit more. We need to listen a little bit more. We need to engage as we see Christ. And so, again, these stats just don't seem to look very good. In the midst of it all, in this same research poll, just under 50% of pastors said that they've ever spoken about the idea from their pulpit. 50% of people have bridged this idea of, of racial injustice, of unity, of diversity across all races and ethnicities. Now, if the Bible barely talked about it, then okay, maybe I'd understand that. I, I guess I still wouldn't, right? But if it was just something that the Bible maybe threw kind of a, a little nugget to here, a nugget to there, you know, it's kind of tucked in between some of our super popular pillow verses, and so we missed it. 
But that's not what we get. And so again, what I wanted to do was just lay a ton of scripture at your feet, and we're gonna go from Genesis to Revelation. We're preaching, I'm literally gonna do the entire survey of the Bible today with emphasis on the Advent story. And so buckle down, we might be here a while. Now, here's my hope in this, and I promise we'll start in the text. I felt like we had to do all this work in the beginning. My hope in this is that, um, like before you act, right, you, you need to diagnose the issues and diagnose the problems. But before I think we even need to diagnose, I think we need to care rightly. Like I think we need to have the right hearts. I think we need to care in right ways. Then with that care, with that heart, we diagnose well. And then after we've diagnosed well, then we act and be part of the restoration, okay? So if anything happens today, I, listen, and I'm not a huge fan of just the, like getting up there and yelling about stuff without presenting a solution. I'm not gonna have a ton of solutions, mostly because of time. Um, but what I am gonna have is a whole bunch of imploring us to care and for our hearts to engage and begin again, as we have the last couple weeks as well, ask good, healthy questions about how we as the church live in our calling to be the church, which is reconciling the world together underneath the banner of heaven. Amen? Let's get, come on, come on. A little bit better, Dude, strong, guys, good job. So here we go. Genesis 1, 26, right? Starting in the very beginning, God has created all things. He's like, says it, bam, it's created, says it, bam, it's created. Genesis 1, 26, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. Now, this vision of Imago Dei or the image of God must be, I think, the central lens with which we view humanity. Because here, in the beginning, God made all things, right? He takes the first five days, and he creates all these different things. And then on day six, he creates some animals, and he says, you know what? There's something missing, something that will genuinely reflect me to the entire world. That when people would look at the way they live, what they look like, how they act, they would know God. And so man and woman were the answer to that. The image of God imprinted upon every single man, woman, child from every single race, background, gender, ethnicity, etc., etc., etc. Every single person in this world is created in the image of God. You see, church, listen, the church, Christianity, Judaism, because right, this is their text, has the most robust vision for equality and care and love for all people of anyone in this world because it's rooted in the very first thing God does. He says, I want to make these people and they're going to reflect my beauty and my goodness and my community and why I'm worthy of worship and what I do to care for the world and they're going to look like a lot of different things. So from the very beginning, we get this first initial thought, God does indeed care and love and seek the restoration and unity of all people and all places. Psalm twenty-two twenty-eight says, kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules over all the nations. So he is the king over all these people. So it's not just he made them and said, all right, well, okay, you guys do you. He is the king over everything. He rules over everyone. He loves everyone. Everyone truly is his Subordinate. Okay, continuing on. God chooses a people, though, specifically in Genesis 12, verse 1. The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. 
I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Okay, so again, notice, first, everyone's created in the image of God, but in the midst of that, God creates and chooses a specific people. He calls out the Jewish people through Abraham and says, listen, you're going to be my guy, and through you, I'm going to create this nation. Now, at first blush, you're thinking, well, look, see, so he does seem to love some more people than others, and this text has been used to oppress people. So notice here, he chose his own group, so he likes people a little bit more. Now notice, what does he call that people to do? To be a blessing to the nations. So, so listen, he, he calls together a people. He does choose a people. He loves this people. He crafts this people. He shapes this people so that they will be a blessing to the entire world. It wasn't, hey, I just want to love you because I like you the most and we're gonna be the best of friends. It was, listen, I like all of that and so I'll give you all this so that you will go and be a blessing. In this text alone, he says, blessed will be the nation of Israel five times. Throughout the rest of the book, He says that the nations will be blessed five times. I think what he's trying to communicate, God in his beauty and his amazing word says, for every time I bless you, Israel, you are to bless the world. This has not changed for us. Church, the blessing of being his, no matter what color you are, does not die with you, but rather we are now called together that we would give this away to the rest of the world, blessed to be a blessing for the unity and the reconciliation of all people across the world, here and abroad. Okay. So, created in his image, chosen and given responsibility to care for the world. So this isn't just a today issue, right? This is the the truth of God throughout history from the very beginning, and again, we'll see all the way to the end, was God's heart for everyone, regardless of color, background, race, ethnicity. It's very important that we know this. This This isn't a cultural issue of the day. This is a God issue of all time, okay? So let's keep going. <clears throat> uh, Matthew two thirteen through 23. So here's, here we're gonna enter into today, right? Into, well, not today, right? So 2,000 years ago when Jesus was born. So um, into our main texts of the day. So I said we've been trying to look through Advent through the lens of how Christ's arrival brings about restoration. Again, justice being how he's making things how they ought to be, how they should be making things just again. And so, again, as we look at this story today, we're gonna see how his advent and his arrival, building off of already the character of God, further emphasizes the reality of this for the church. It says this in verse 13. Now when they departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and all that, and all that region who were two years old and under according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Now, again, just the presence of the wise men, and we talked about them more in depth last week, has to, again, reinforce this idea that when God comes in and he chooses, who am I gonna give a preview of the kingdom of God to? Who am I gonna say, hey, listen, I'm here now, right? And after all this waiting, he calls three wise men who were not Jews, right? They were were not of the chosen race. They were not of the chosen people. No, no, these guys were probably... 
These guys were probably Eastern, right? These guys were foreigners. These guys were not locals. These guys were not of the kind of in crowd, of the people you would expect that he would go to first, but he does. He calls out these magi from the East, and then they hear, and they are a significant part of the story, even their interaction with Herod, who is a terrible, terrible guy. Okay. Now, here's what I want to really sink our teeth in, is understand Jesus as the refugee. Do you realize what's happening in this narrative? Jesus in his homeland, born, being raised up, hears about oppression that could come his way, potential and probably certain death that would come his way, and he is forced out of his homeland into a place that is not his home, that is not his own, and he enters into Egypt as a refugee. And I wonder, I just would have to think that he's hoping that maybe somewhere along the lines, what he told the Jewish people in the Old Testament to do, hopefully that spread to other regions. What I mean by that, in Leviticus 19.33, says, when a foreigner resides among you in your land, talking to Israel, do not mistreat them. The foreigner residing among you must be treated as your native born. Love them as yourself, for you were foreigners in Egypt. Now, this is just very interesting, this entire narrative, right? For you were foreigners in Egypt, and speaking to, right, Old Testament Israel, who finds themselves living in Egypt, enslaved, they were foreigners there. Now, that story didn't start off bad. That story started off really good. They were welcomed into the land, okay? If, if you guys know your Old Testament history, there was a drought. They were welcomed into the land. That's the whole story of Joseph bringing in his people, his family. They grow, and they grow in size. Everything's going well. But then what happens is Pharaoh begins to freak out because the Israelites are growing in power. They're growing in influence. They're probably taking some of the jobs of the people that wanted to Oh, oh, taking some of the jobs of people who wanted to work, right? Doing things that the Pharaoh was like, I don't like that. This seems to be headed a direction. I don't want this to go. If this stays this trajectory, I don't know if we're going to be able to control Israel anymore. I, I, or the Jews, right? I don't know if we'll be able to have the Jews do whatever we want them to do to fit into the social class we've called them to fit into, to be the people that we want them to be. And so then the oppression begins from there. And then what happens is then the Israelite people, the Jewish people, then have to flee Egypt, right? You get the whole narrative with the ten plagues and on and on. They flee back into their own lands after many years in the wilderness. And this one is so funny that right, you fast forward to present day, or sorry, not present day, present day in our story, and you have Jesus once again fleeing to Egypt to get away from certain death. The same way as people had in the past, he does it again. And I think, I wonder if it was just, hey, listen up, guys. Let's remember, right, Israel, let's remember who we are, what we've been through, and what's happened. Let's remember, as Christ has now come, this Advent, which is now opening up the gospel way even beyond Israel, and not just a blessing to the world, but this complete and total salvation to come to all nations through the preaching of what Christ has done. And I think he's just sowing that seed so the church would be able to respond well to what was about to happen with his life, death, and resurrection and a preaching of a gospel of salvation for the whole world. So he's like, listen, man, 
I'm, I'm facing certain death, so I'm going to have to flee here. Now, hear me. Nothing I'm saying right now, because I know, again, that there are some hearts in here right now are already going like, listen, the, the, the refugee issue in the country and world today is far more uh, difficult yeah, it, it, it's, it's far more confusing. There's, there's positions here and positions there. It's tough to nuance and navigate. And listen, I am not discrediting any of that. But I am saying there's a certain heart that the church is supposed to have about this issue. And all I'm asking is, do we have that heart? Do we have that, that longing, that view, that care, that desire to be able to be about the sojourner, to be about the foreigner, in the way Christ was. Because I just wonder, would we even let Jesus in today? If Jesus was fleeing his land, would we let him in? Would you let him in? Again, realizing it's very complex. But could Jesus get in here today? I don't know. Now, now why, right? The constant question is that, what would, again, peeling back the layers of the Advent story, why, why does he choose to come in this way? Right? He, he could have set himself in any position, in any place in the kingdom, right? He, he, could, have, he could have been emperor, right? If he, if he wanted to just, I'm going to be born into this lineage that would make me emperor, and then he could have just come in and done this a completely different direction. But he chooses intentionally, I think, right? He's the Lord of the world. He understands and knows all things. And so he chooses to come in this infant child who would be oppressed and certain life would be taken from him should he not flee as a refugee. I think we are to pay attention about the heart of God for the world and for the nations and its implications and applications for us today in a very difficult and complex situation. Again, please, that's not lost on me. Okay. So we continue on in the narrative. Verse 17, then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea, in the place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth. So that was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled that he would be called a Nazarene. Again, if you're familiar with other texts in your scripture, John 1, 46, some people are talking about Jesus. They're saying, hey, this is the guy. This is the son of man. This is the Messiah, savior of the world. There's, you know, there's already probably whispers about who this guy is, what he's done, what his life's about. And so some critics, right, some opposers, they say this in John 1, 46, they say, can anything good come out of Nazareth? You see, Nazareth, Nazareth had somewhat of a reputation as a neighborhood you didn't want to be from, right? It, it, there, there was nothing that would say, yeah, you know what, that's the place it would seem like goodness would come from or certainly not the savior of the world. He wouldn't implant himself into this town or into that neighborhood or that ghetto or that place. That just didn't make sense. And yet, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Absolutely. Indeed, the savior of the world. God in the flesh. It's from there. And again, we just lay this rubric over our world today. And is there not that division? 
Is there not that pain? Is there not that judgment? Is there not that view, that outlook of, you know what, that neighborhood, be careful. Can anything good come out of that neighborhood? Can anything good come out of those people? Right, so when they're thinking Nazareth, they're not just, it's not just the village, it's not just what's there or what's not there from a, you know, an infrastructure standpoint. It was the people that were from Nazareth were not good people in the eyes of the predominant culture in Israel and in the Roman, uh, in the Roman what's that thing called, nation empire at the time. What good could come out of Nazareth? And I just wonder if we adopted, unfortunately, a similar heart to say, well, what good can come out of that people? And maybe, maybe we never go that far, right? That sounds really bad. Maybe it's just, I mean, odds are there's not going to be too, good, too much goodness out of those people. Uh, odds are, you know, they're, they're, they're more this. So let, let's, let's be careful. Uh, odds are, et cetera, et cetera. And Jesus comes out. And they begin to see him teach and do all these things. And I just wonder, do they say such silly things like, man, he's quite articulate. They say these things about these people from Nazareth because, man, that's just not what the expectation is. That is foolishness. What good can come out of Nazareth? I wonder, again, in his intentionality, the sovereign God of the world said, you know what, I'm going to go to the neighborhood, which it makes no sense for me to come from, just to show you the Imago Dei, just to show you value and love and grace and everything that I have done in all people to bring them underneath the banner of me and what I'm doing here. His advent, again, turning the world upside down to say, you know what, all that racial division that exists both outside your people group and within your people group, certainly, I've come to tear that all down. I've come to say that's foolishness. It doesn't matter where they're coming from. It doesn't matter where they are, what they look like. They are all mine. And if I'm his and you're his and every other person around here is his and our value is not placed on some type of cultural standing but rather on the image of God, that has to have implications on the way we treat people, on the way we think about people, on the way we care and engage and love and seek redemption, restoration, and justice in 2016, almost 17, in the United States of America as the Church of Christ. It just has to. Even in the mix of the complexity of the, like, ah, but what about this? I get that. Listen, I'm not saying the discussions that need to go after this, right? I'm not saying that those are not, or that those are diff, dang, I am saying that they're difficult, that they're not easy, but we have to have them. Because the heart of God is for all people. across every line that our culture would want to bring division. Now, again, like, I don't think a lot of us are sitting here and saying, well, no way, you know, that's not true. God doesn't love everyone. We all, we hear that, well, God loves everyone. Man, if, if that's true, then man, I think there's a certain type of engagement that the church needs to be a part of. And so again, if anything, again, today, I'm just, I know I'm not offering a ton of solutions, 
but, but I want our hearts to care and only care because God cares, not care because it's the right thing to do, not care because I may just sit here for 45 minutes and kind of just yell at you, but I want us to care because we see the heart of God is for the nations. That's why we care, because the gospel is for all. It's not about me saying something. It's not about our culture saying, well, this is the new trendy thing that we should be about in the justice realm. No, no, we are a justice-seeking people because God is a justice-seeking God. And it has to start there. It has to end there. It's got to be everything in between. And we just are now grateful recipients of that same gospel. Because the beauty of this story and the reality of this story is that God is in, listen, he's in his own, he's his own race, right? He's his own species. He's, he's his own, just everything, right? So everything that is not God exists in some other race, some others, like we are not God. And so his love for those who are not him is the only reason you and I breathe today. It's the only reason we, if you're here and you're a Christian, you have your assurance of faith and eternity today is because God looked out and loved the other and said, I don't care that you're not me. I don't care if you're not where I'm from. I don't care if you don't look just like I look. I will lay my life down to bring you in. Church, until we adopt this posture, Sam, I mean, I... I don't care where you're from. I don't care what you look like. I don't care what neighborhood you come out of. I'm going to lay my life down that you be brought in, that you could flourish, that there would be goodness, there would be redemptive goodness in you and through you to the world. And that has to direct us, that has to move us. I think, right, if we love Christ, if we believe what he's saying to be true. Acts 1.8 says this. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And so this gospel happens. Jesus comes in. He lives a life that none of us could live. He dies a death that none of us wanted to die. And he raises on the third day, giving new life to all who would believe and trust in him. He says, that message, it's not just going to stay here in Jerusalem. It's not going to stay here in Judea. It's not just going to stay here in Samaria. I mean, this thing needs to go global, right? Now, now if, if, if the gospel was meant to be for a one person, right? If it was meant to be kind of this truncated reality for a select few, then let's just keep it in Jerusalem. Right? Okay, let's just keep it in the region. Let's keep it in the county, you know, let's just keep it at least in the state. Let's not, let's not go national with this thing. But no, he says, listen, I'm going to come in power and I'm going to equip and bless the church so that this gospel goes to the ends of the world because he cares just as so much about the person living in central China right now that doesn't know Christ as he does your roommate who looks just like you, who acts just like you. Um, I had a conversation, and again, hear me, like I know this is a nuanced issue, but... I had a conversation with a guy just a couple weeks, probably about three weeks ago, four weeks ago. And we were talking about just some of the headlines, and I love talking to this guy uh, just because he thinks, I think, thoughtfully and engages just culture and what's going on and how, how does the gospel have implications this? We start talking about, uh, we start talking about Syria, and we start talking about Aleppo, right? Uh, and the devastation that's happening there. Now, and if, if you don't even, let me just, 
Like, there is a city named Aleppo that is just constantly being bombed by all sorts of people. And there are people who live there, children, men, women, who are dying all the time, every day. Okay? And you just go and you watch these headlines, and they're devastating. You watch the videos, and they're heartbreaking, the whole deal. And we started talking about that, and there's just some things he was saying were starting to be a little concerning in my heart. And I said, hey, man, let me just ask you a question. I said, like, do you remember 9-11? He said, yeah, certainly. Who doesn't remember 9-11? Remember where it was, the whole deal. I said, did you grieve on 9-11? He said, yeah, man. I said, it's a big deal. I said, yeah, it was. I said, do you grieve in that same way over what's happening in Aleppo? And he said, no. And then he even had a couple of rationalizations while that was true. And I said something to him that maybe I just said in a moment, but I've thought a bit more about, and I think is true. And I said to him, man, I'm, I'm afraid, and I think that for you, your church is, is America and not the church. I said, I, th- I think for you, your, your church is here, and it's this place, and it's the United States of America, and it's, it's, it's not the church, because the church is global. And I began to think about this more, and we talked about it a little bit more. And said, what do you mean by that? And I said, listen, like, if you grieve more for, for people who are lost, which we should grieve deeply and mourn and be so upset about, that die here in this own land, but as Christians who are part of a greater kingdom which supersedes the kingdoms of this world, you are not grieved over the death of other people made in the image of God because they're in some other country. Your church is not the church. Your church is our nation. And, I, and listen, I, I slip into that all the time. And, and even, let, please hear me, like, I love the United States of America. Like, when the Olympics go, I'm awkward with it, right? Like, I'm painting my face. I'm getting real weird. But it's not my church. It's not my family. It's not the people with whom I've been brought into because of the sacrifice and death of Jesus. It's just not. So yes, weep and care deeply, mourn, engage, but we need to do that for all people even if they don't look like you and they don't have the same name on some citizenship paper. So I had to really analyze my own heart and say, Who's my church? Who's my savior? Because I, 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 I desperately, I think when Christ, right, when he looks over the world, I don't think he's more grieved by the deaths in this country than he is in another. Do you? So, so why should I be if I am to be him to this world? We need to grieve it all. And I think we bring that into mic- the micro moments of this world in our culture today and say, listen, just because that community doesn't look like me, doesn't think like me, doesn't act like me, they're from the wrong neighborhood, they're from the wrong place, they're just this, I need to have the same eyes, the same heart, and the same mind as Christ does for the world and look upon those people and care about them just as much as he cares about me. And then embody what he has embodied, which is sacrificial love for the world. So do we, do we care? Now, to wrap this up, because I know I'm running a bit long on you, Revelation 7, 10. So here's the whole arc, right? From Genesis to Revelation. He's created us in the Imago Dei. He has a vision for life. He creates and chooses a people that would be blessed to be a blessing to go to the nations to present his glory and goodness to the world of all people, all nations, all races, all backgrounds, all ethnicities, etc. 
Jesus comes on the scene, I think does some peculiar choices, I think to show you who and what he's about, and it's all people, all races, all colors. And then he goes to the cross, and in this moment turns everything upside down because he brings all people into the opportunity to be in his presence, not just a select few, as that gospel goes to the world. And then he wraps it up, I think, here. In Revelation 7.10, the end of time, as we all rejoice together in heaven for eternity with God, it says this. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So this whole narrative, again, like I said before, if this was something that I didn't think that Scripture cared that much about, maybe it would make sense that we didn't talk more about it or pastors didn't want to preach on it. But the Bible that I'm reading from the very beginning to the very end seems to craft this narrative, the gospel is for all people. So much so that it gives us this vision for the future that you and I and those in the room who love Jesus, and I'm praying already that if you're here and you didn't come loving Jesus, that right now you do and or you will before you leave. That all of us will be, I don't know what it's going to look like, I don't know how big that stadium needs to be, I don't know how long it's going to last, but there are going to be a bunch of us standing before Jesus Christ, the Lord and Savior of this world, and together in one voice praising and glorifying his name. And you're going to look out in the crowd, and the sad thing for me is I don't think it's going to look like 90 plus plus percent of the churches in America. Revelation gives us a vision of eternity, and the church is supposed to be a foreshadow of eternity. So, man, I would love if instead, when people walked in here, Whenever they came into this church and they joined us in the Orpheum on any given Sunday morning, they'd be able to look out on this place. They could stand where I'm standing look out here and say, you know what, that is what the kingdom of God will look like for all eternity. And if that's true, I think there's some work to do. Not, listen, not just here, listen, just, this, is, this is everywhere. In every organization, in every place, for the rest of time until he comes back. But surely the people of God need to care first. We need to have our eyes open first. We need to have the heart of God first. And so I'm praying for us that we move that direction. We make, you know, we make missteps, we make mistakes. That's going to happen all day, but we do it trying to pursue and follow Jesus. That we'd be a people that even when we're wrong, that we would debate well. And I've been blessed because there are people here in this room that, I, that I've disagreed with on various issues and I've learned from and been shaped from and called out on and said, hey man, you're thinking this way, that's not right. And listen, that's, that, hear me, that's both directions. That's people saying, hey man, you're, you're far too over here with this, you need to bring it this way. And other people, you're far too over here with this and you need to bring it this way. And God willing, those people will always be in my life to say, hey, hey let's bring this underneath the banner of God. A couple pitfalls and then I'll pray. And a big one is when we stop listening to each other. There are some people in this room that are way smarter than me. And since I'm smarter than most of you, they're way smarter than you, okay? 
talk to other people. Engage with people that God's brought into your life here in the family of God. Have good, honest conversations and be humble. And don't just be humble from like a trite, like, yeah, I'm supposed to truly check your heart and engage and learn. Listen, ask good questions. Talk to those who don't look like you. Okay? They, don't, they don't do what you do. They're not from where you're from. And learn. I think constantly we'll pursue the heart of Jesus for the way that we make an image to the world of what the kingdom of God looks like. Amen? All right, let's pray. Jesus, I thank you that for your arrival 2,000 years ago, it's a... It was funny to me, God, because it's such a heavy topic and Lord, you got me wearing a Sasquatch Christmas sweater. (laughs) God, I think it's just so incredible and profound that you are the only one who truly knows exactly how this should shake itself out. And so God, I, I, I pray against my own pride my own vision for what is right, my own vision for the way things should be handled, what the next steps are. God, I truly just want to take the next steps that you want to take as a church, as an individual, as a nation. God, and so I do pray, God, for wisdom for all of us, for insight for all of us, for a love of your word that constantly reminds us of who you are and what your heart is. God, will we make decisions, will we diagnose and act because we're yours, because of the gospel, because you brought us in, Jesus. We had no business being welcomed by you. And you still brought us in. So Lord, we live as recipients, God, of your heart today and of your love and of the life you lived and the death you died. God, constantly give us new life. That we could extend that type of goodness to the world, motivated by your work. Lord, bless us as we worship you now, and we respond as we give, because we celebrate what you have done. In Jesus' name, amen.